Hello, humans. Hello, hello, hello. This is Ellie Krug talking to you live. This is a live show this morning. I am speaking to you from Montgomery, Alabama. Yes, you heard that right. Montgomery, Alabama. I am in the midst of taking a road trip across the South. I'm calling it Ellie's Road Trip for Hope. Um, and what I'm doing is coming to the South to listen and to speak, to listen to see what it's like to live in the South if you are quote unquote other, and to speak about how humans living in the margin, and that is a lot of people about letting them know that they matter. I need to say right off the bat, a big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson, who had to make special arrangements to do this show live. And I need to thank also the station owner, Chad Larson, because Chad um, believes in me and my work so incredibly much that he has, I have this show, LE 2.0, which as you may recall, if you're a regular listener, is about me being a hopeless idealist. And so, uh, yes, I'm on this uh, road trip and um, I am learning a great deal about our country, about the South in particular. I'm learning a little bit about me as well. About the South. Let me talk to you about Montgomery, Alabama. And you know, it's interesting because yesterday, last night, we had the Super Bowl. And I don't know if you caught it. I assume some of you did with Dr. King's uh, speech being imposed, superimposed over a Dodge Ram truck ad. And um, it was his speech about greatness. And, you know, he, it, it, it's so symbolic because Dr. King walked these streets of Montgomery. He preached from the Dexter Avenue Church. He was instrumental in the Montgomery bus boycott, and I will talk about that in a second. But I, I was in Tallahassee and, um, um, yesterday morning, and then I drove through the back roads of Georgia and Alabama to get into Montgomery around noon. And I came into town looking at Alabama to get into Montgomery around noon. And I came into town um, to get there. I had to drive um, past the first Confederate White House. They still have it. They commemorate it. Past the Alabama State House and Capitol. Past the Alabama Supreme Court. And then down Montgomery Street, where I found the museum. But much to my chagrin, it was closed. Yesterday was Rosa Parks' birthday. And yet they couldn't open the restaurant, the, um, excuse me, the museum special for her birthday, unfortunately. And so I did not get to go in. Um, and then I drove around downtown. And, and for those who have never been to Montgomery, the city is about the size of St. Paul, um, give or take. Uh, and as I drove, I came to a place called Court Square. Um, it is at the intersection of Commerce Street and Dexter Avenue. Now, Court Square, if you've never heard of it in Montgomery, is a very historical place 
for a variety of reasons, some good and some not so good. Um, it was, um, for a long time, the location of slave markets. And as of late as 1859, there were seven slave auctioneer companies and four, count them, four slave depots around Court Square. Um, it was also, Court Square was also the location where the telegram message was sent that ignited the Civil War. It was a message sent by the Confederate Secretary of War to General Beauregard in Charleston, advising General Beauregard to, um, uh, to institute bombardment of Fort Sumter if the Union troops would not um, easily surrender and leave the area. That occurred in, on April 11, 1861. Court Square was also the location 94 years later. So we go from 1861 to 1955, and Court Square was the place where Rosa Parks, that Rosa Parks, boarded a bus, a Montgomery City bus, and then later refused to give up her seat. I'll come back to that in the second part of this show. Now, three blocks from Court Square, there's a memorial under construction. It is the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. That memorial is located on a hill overlooking downtown Montgomery. And that hill is symbolic because it's a place where lynchings blacks occurred with some regularity. The memorial, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice is intended to honor the 4,384 known victims of lynching. Let me give you that number once again, 4,384 known victims of lynching who were murdered from 1887 to 1950. And those of you with your history, you may recall that lynching was one of the ways that the white majority kept control as part of Jim Crow. This museum, this memorial, is a project of the Equal Justice Institute and its founder, Brian Stevenson. The memorial will have 816 suspended columns representing each of those columns representing a U.S. county where a lynching occurred. Let me give you that number as well again. 816 U.S. counties in which lynching occurred. The names of each victim of lynching of a lynching will in each county will be inscribed on each of these columns. The, and and I, I was there yesterday, the, the memorial is still under construction. There were workers trying to get the, the um, working on it because they have a end of April opening date for the memorial. And you can see these columns and they, they are hanging columns to represent be symbolic of lynching victims. Even under construction, this memorial 
is powerful looking at it from the street. And if you want to see a see the picture of the memorial, you can go to my blog at elliekrug.com. I've done a um, posting about um, my travels yesterday and my time around Montgomery at my blog at, at www.elliekrug.com. And you can see I've got a, I've posted a picture of uh, the memorial under construction. Now, not far from the memorial is a museum um, to document enslavement. The, it's the muse museum to document the progression of history from enslavement to mass incarceration, also a project of the Equal Justice Institute. And you know, it's overwhelming if you think about all of the horror that took place in Montgomery, but I will tell you something. They are at least willing to acknowledge it. Unlike many places in our country, and now Twin Cityans, I'm going to just remind, unlike what we are willing to do in the Twin Cities, our liberal bastion, our place of great compassion, we have a difficult time talking in the Twin Cities about racism, about what we did to each other. Where are the memorials? Where is the, where is the public discourse about the Rondo neighborhood that was unilaterally taken out? Where is the public discourse about redlining that took place in the Twin Cities as late as the early 1970s? At least in Montgomery, they will talk about it. And in fact, there's a walk with um, various plaques that you can go to to take the history of what happened, the tragedies that occurred in Montgomery. And so... Uh, I am learning, I am finding what it is like to live here in the South. I will tell you, it is different. You know, there is a vibrant black middle class that I'm seeing everywhere I go. Again, not something that we see in the Twin Cities because the Twin Cities is so divided between white and black. It is. I'm sorry to report that. Um, and we only see either very, very successful people of color or very, very unsuccessful people of color. Just go walk through the skyways some afternoon and you'll see what it is that I'm talking about. When I come back um, in the B block, I want to talk uh, more about what I've learned on my trip and a little bit about what I've learned about Ellie Krug. I look forward to talking to you in a second after our break. Thank you. Ellie Krug live from Montgomery, Alabama. Back live on LE 2.0 on AM 950. I am speaking to you from Montgomery, Alabama. I have been on a road trip uh, to the south since I left Minneapolis last 
Tuesday afternoon at 4.45. Since then, I've driven 1,900 miles. I drove down to Tallahassee where I spoke uh, to a couple on a couple of occasions, courtesy of PFLAG of Tallahassee. Thank you so very much, PFLAG and Transparents of uh, Tallahassee as well. I also gave a radio or excuse me, a TV interview at the ABC affiliate in Tallahassee. Let me tell you what I've been learning. So in Tallahassee, I met with um, LGBTQ people and some people of color on two different occasions. And um, during one of those talks, we certainly, um, well, in both talks, we focused on what it was like to be gay or lesbian or transgender or bisexual living in Tallahassee. I learned that Tallahassee was a bubble to a certain extent, like the Twin Cities. They have two universities and liberal and some transplants from liberal cities. Um, but I also learned that Tallahassee has its uh, challenges as it relates to LGBTQ people. And that includes the Tallahassee School District having a controversy over a gender nonconforming elementary school teacher who made the mistake of simply sending a letter to home with students to say that my um, pronouns are they and them and I'm and and please address me with the um, uh, surname of MX and um, and and so that was um, that was apparently too much for some parents in the Tallahassee school district and it caused for that teacher to be a re reassigned from an elementary school um, to um, teaching adult education. They are still gripping grappling, excuse me, with this issue in Tallahassee. I also sat with a group of people, some people of color, and, and the conversation in Tallahassee migrated um, from LGBTQ to color. And I heard the phrase, knowing your place. I heard that phrase as one of the constants about living in Florida in general. Um, Tallahassee, again, um, more liberal than other places in Florida. By the way, there is not an LGBTQ um, statewide law, unlike in, in um, Minnesota. Actually, that's the case for almost every state that I'm going to be in, and I'll come to that in a second. Um, but as we talked about race in Tallahassee, I heard, I heard another phrase, the white wall. And that's, that's how... And several people spoke of it about how only white people are hired to be servers and people of color are hired to be in the back, to be the ones who are the cooks or the or the dishwashers. And that white wall apparently is still alive and well in Tallahassee, perhaps changing, but it, it was an education for me to hear about it. On Saturday night, I had dinner with a family of a fifth grade transgender boy. We'll call him Wesley. That is the name that he really likes. Um, I would not have known that this boy with short hair, wearing certainly very boy clothes, um, sitting um, across from me at the dinner table, I would never have known um, that he was assigned a different gender at birth. And the family, oh my God, so incredibly accepting 
so incredibly um, affirming for Wesley. He was so very lucky. Both parents were involved with PFLAG, that's uh, parents and friends of lesbians and gays. And they became involved to get some credentials so that they could advocate on behalf of their son and on behalf of other trans kids. And Wesley talked about last summer going to a summer camp in New Hampshire with uh, nearly 200 other transgender kids. This is a summer camp for transgender kids. Um, and this summer coming up, he's going to go for three, three weeks. Way to go, Wesley. And it was sounded like just a summer camp that any other kids will go to, where they're canoeing and they're doing activities, but they're also talking about what it means to live authentically. And again, why this is the way our world should be, where people who are other, that, that they're not marginalized, that they're not criticized for being themselves. And and as I went to I went to dinner at Wesley's home with his parents and then his sister Megan, and um, and and at towards the end of the meal I was asked, would, Ellie, would you like to play a board game with us? And I'm like, sure. And so I played my very first board game in a number of years with this family, learning um, learning a new game and as well as observing a normal, we are talking normal, capitalized letters, normal family, just simply interacting. And so it was a wonderful experience on my part. And I don't get meals at home, very, at, you know, cook meals very often by someone else. And it was just quite delightful. Um, and so um, it was, and it was, very interesting. I, I am also a lawyer, you may remember, by um, training. And so when I go to new cities, I'm always looking at the billboards because lawyers are advertising by billboards a great deal these days. And when I was in Tallahassee, I saw a number of law firms that, that advertised, and then they would have the pictures of all of their lawyers. And you know what? I saw a lot of law firms with, you know, maybe a dozen people, like a dozen faces on the billboard. And they were all white faces. One would think that maybe there aren't any black lawyers in Tallahassee. Again, that's the way it is. Of course, it doesn't have to be that way. Okay, so other things that I'm learning. I'm learning about me. I'm learning about um, what it's like to be other. Um, I was in a small town yesterday because one of the things I like to do when I go to places is I like to get off the interstates and I like to do the back roads, the two lane blacktop roads, to, because you really get a sense of what a state, a place is like when you, when you can do that, go through the winding, yes, slower, two lane blacktop roads and find what it is that you will find. I came across um, a number of different things, a, a, a very big cross in a, in a um, cemetery um, in rural Alabama. And close to the Georgia-Alabama line, I stopped at a convenience store for a bathroom break and a Diet Pepsi, one of my vices. And I walked into this convenience store. It, you know, it was like 10, 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was 
the only white blonde woman in the place and i was i was only the only white person in the place as well i would say that there were a dozen people inside the store and you know for that moment i felt other in a big way i felt it because of course my color and then i also felt it because there was this fear always about me speaking because right now you're hearing what sounds like a man's voice. I look very female, I can assure you. And I'm always worried that it will attract attention. And so I made a deliberate effort as I was in this convenience store not to say anything to anyone, to just whisper as I was paying for my diet Pepsi. And then I walked out of the store. There was a group of men um, outside, you know, doing their chatting and walked out of the store. And I got and people looked at me because I was I was other. I was different. And it and it felt uncomfortable of being the only one of me. And then as I drove away, I thought of two things. One of how it is that other other people who are other, the ones of the only ones in the room. Now I know, of course, I was reminded of what that must feel like. But then also about um, my fear of other, my fear that if I engaged, perhaps something would go wrong. I want to come back now to Rosa Parks. I have, I'm running out of time. It's very quick here. And I just want you to remind mind you about the bravery that occurred when she was on that bus. Let's go back to that day of December 1, 1955. She got on a bus and in, and in Montgomery, the buses were segregated. So the first four or five rows were <clears throat> reserved for right, whites. Then several rows after that, blacks could sit. But if the bus filled up with whites, the blacks had to get off of the bus and they had to move to the back of the bus. And so um, that just, you know, and, and, and on that day, the bus filled, you know, and, and, and on that day, the bus filled elliekrug.com. You'll hear more and you'll read more about my trip. Sorry that I've run out of time. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening.